we have no illusions of our own grandeur. We are just in awe of you. We see you for all that you are. We see you for all of the goodness and holiness that you are, that you offer to us. We are encaptured by this idea that you love us. By this idea that a holy God like yourself could love a tarnished people like us. Yet it's so simple and it's so true and it drives us. Father, thank you for being an object worthy of worship. We love you. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Would you all remain standing as we open up with the scripture? It's out of Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 16. It says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. May God bless the reading of this word. You may be seated at this time. Today is our third week of a sermon series entitled Brave. Um, and Basically, each week we're answering a different question. Week one, we answered the question, what is the gospel? Week two, James answered the question, how do we communicate that gospel as we have clearly been instructed to do? And today I've been asked to answer the question, how do we live out the gospel in our deeds? What does a life look like that reflects the gospel in everyday actions? It's basically the now what. I have repented of my sins. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, sent from heaven to save humanity. Now what? What do I do? Where do I go now? In order to say anything about this topic, there's a word that we say often and must be understood, and that word is sanctification. It's one of those words that we say all the time in the church. You've probably heard it many times, but it's rarely actually defined or explored. In just a moment, I will give you a definition, but first I want to give you a scriptural framework for that definition so you can kind of see where in the Bible we're getting this idea. So beginning in Romans fifteen sixteen, I have all of these references on the PowerPoint behind me so you don't have to flip like crazy all through your Bible. You can if you want to. 
Um, Romans 15, verses 15 through 16. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.5 says, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Romans 8.13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And then lastly, Romans 6, starting in verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Now, that's only scratching the surface. There's a lot more of the scriptures that speak on this topic. But hopefully the few I've included have given you enough of a scriptural framework to understand where we get this concept of sanctification. And so the following definition is taken straight from the Dictionary of Biblical Themes. So it's not even my own. I'm using it from another scholar. It says, Sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit in enabling believers to lead holy lives, dedicated to the service of God and conformed to his likeness. I'll say that one more time because definitions are important. Sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit in enabling believers to lead holy lives, dedicated to the service of God and conformed to his likeness. Now, the reason I've spent so much time on this word, on introducing you to this concept, is because the answer to the question I have been asked to answer today is, in one word, sanctification. How do we live out the gospel in our lives? Sanctification. See, the single word encapsulates the entire Christian faith after the point of initial salvific belief. After you come to Jesus and you place your faith in him, everything after that is sanctification. And that's what should drive all of it. We were rebels who surrendered at last their rebellion and submitted to the king once more. And sanctification is the process of God helping us to get rid of those last shreds of rebellion in our hearts and become like the sons and daughters of the king that we were meant to be. Instead of remaining in that heart state of a rebel, God, our king, helps us to become as sons and daughters of royalty. He helps us to become like Christ. Many times this aspect of Christianity gets glossed over, whether it be intentionally or not. Because, see, in a Baptist evangelical church, which is what we are, we focus a lot on salvation is not due to our own works or our own goodness. It is a free gift of God to all those who believe that Jesus came and died for our sins. We focus on that a lot because that's a good and biblical truth, right? Amen? Like God is offered salvation to us for free. That's something that people need to understand. 
because we often think that we need to earn heaven. That's the common held idea by our culture. But the only problem is that sometimes we focus so much on how all you need to do is believe in Jesus that once a person does, we consider that the success story and we move on. We preach the gospel in hopes that a sinner will place their faith in Christ. And once they do, it's mission accomplished. Man, you're going to love being a Christian. I'll see you on Sunday. Right? And then the person who converts, they actually accept this faith. They see the, the fruit in it. They see the life in it. They accept it and they are lost. They wander throughout their life not knowing what to do now. Oh, I've already done everything I need to do to be a Christian. But if there's anything that I am undoubtedly certain of from looking at the scriptures, both in preparation for this sermon and in my own general life experiences, it's that initial belief is not the end of our story. The Christian faith is not just free fire insurance or a get-out-of-hell-free card, right? The Christian faith is so much more than that. Ephesians 5 says in verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And then down in verse 25, Paul expands on this idea as Christ giving himself up for us, and he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. See, it doesn't say that Christ gave himself up for the church so that she might live without fear of going to hell. It doesn't say that Christ gave himself up for the church so that one day we're just going to miraculously appear in heaven. While these things are true, we can live without fear of going to hell. We will miraculously, by the grace of God, one day appear in heaven. Those things are true. But if that's the extent of your view of the Christian life, you're missing the meat of it. You're missing the the bigger picture. As a result of our placing our faith in Christ, we can now be transformed by the Holy Spirit into holy creatures, partaking of eternal life, reflecting the character of our loving Father. And where this starts to get really cool is when you start to notice that this is the entire Trinity involved here, right? God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three distinct persons, but unified in their Godhead. 1 Peter 1-2, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he greets those who are elect exiles, and he greets them, and it says in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. In other words, sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit to make us like Jesus so that we can have a perfect relationship with the Father. All three persons of the holy, unified Godhead are at work in reconciling us beyond the tragedy of sin. However, this is not easy. Any of you who are a Christian in here know that this is not easy. You realize very quickly after you become a Christian and you place your faith in Christ, you start going to church, you do all the right stuff, you read your Bible, it doesn't take long for you to realize that you're still a sinner. And we know that this reality of sin in our lives puts a damper on this process of sanctification, of this process of us becoming holy, right? 
sin stops the work of God. It inhibits the work of God. But yet we're told that the Holy Spirit is in us and is able to defeat all sins. So how do these ideas reconcile? How do we reconcile the ideas of a still sinful nature but the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of us, empowering us? How do those two ideas come together? Well, a man named Philip Tallon, who is a theology professor at HBU, wrote a book named The Absolute Basics of the Christian Faith. And in his section on sanctification, he used this illustration. Imagine you were lost in a forest as a child, and like Mowgli from the Jungle Book, you were raised by the wild wolves. You learn all the wolfish ways of living and hunting. You learn to fight like a wolf. You survive by killing and hiding food and scaring off other animals to make sure you always have enough to eat. One day, though, a tiger comes into the forest. He corners you. You can't fight him off. He's too powerful, so you retreat to your cave. And as he's approaching you, just in that moment, you hear a gunshot. The tiger runs off, and there are your parents. They found you at last, and they take you home, and they are overjoyed at your return, and you're glad to be saved. But you find life in the human world confusing. You get in fights with people who come to visit. You steal and hide food from your parents, and you live in constant fear that others will try and kill you. In other words, you are still living in all of the ways that you learned in the forest. And those ways may work in the forest, but they don't work in a human family. So you have to go back and learn all the stuff that you never learned as a child. You have to learn to bathe, even though you're afraid of the water. You have to learn to read, even though it's not as exciting to you as running through the woods. And you have to learn to trust other people, which comes very hard to you. Your parents have taken the boy out of the forest, which was an extremely hard thing to do, but they find quickly that it's harder to take the forest out of the boy. That's how it is with us and God. That's sanctification. It's the work of going from just being saved by Jesus' death to being imitators of Jesus' life. And it is a lifelong process. Now what's really important to understand about sanctification is that it is not our work. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again because it's extremely important. Sanctification is not our work. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to read that passage from Galatians that I began with one more time. And as I read it, look for language about the Spirit. Look for what it says about the Holy Spirit. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Notice the abundant use of the word spirit, the abundant spirit language in this passage. 
If you're not careful and you read this text, it's possible to walk away from it thinking, the Bible says I am to be holy. And Galatians 5 says that holiness is comprised of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Therefore, I must work on these qualities, and then I will be holy. And the problem with this mindset is that it takes the entire burden of holiness and places it upon our own shoulders. And church, trust me when I say you will be crushed under that weight. Absolutely crushed. To try and figure out everything that you have to do to be perfectly holy and set out on a personal mission to be those things will end dismally. So then what should you do? I think the answer is to look at the invariably connected role of the Holy Spirit in holiness. Anytime sanctification is mentioned in the scriptures, the Holy Spirit is, mean, and is, is mentioned with it. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to sanctify us into the perfect image of God. It is not our work. Thus, our focus should not be placed on a perfect code of conduct, but rather on seeking the presence of the Spirit in our hearts and in our lives. If the Spirit is abundant within us, then you will become holier. It is impossible to commune with God and to rest in his presence and still love your sin. Paul says these two things are opposed to each other. They do not coexist. John always uses this example of how it's unnatural to spend 30 minutes reading your Bible and praying and then go out and yell at your wife right? It doesn't connect. There's nothing in you after spending time with the Lord that makes you want to go out and disrespect someone. Why is this? Because God will change you. Just spending time with God will change you and mold you into his image because that's his design. He created us for relationship. There was a man named John Ronald Rule Tolkien commonly abbreviated J.R.R. Tolkien. Many of you know him. He wrote this little epic masterpiece called Lord of the Rings. And one thing that Tolkien is known for, he's been on record saying this, is his distaste for allegory. He hates it. He cannot stand it. For those of you who might not know, allegory is a story in which certain characters and elements of the plot are intended to represent something else. They're probably in our own world. A well-known example of this was actually written by Tolkien's really good friend, C.S. Lewis. It was called The Chronicles of Narnia. In it, Aslan, the lion, the magic lion, was meant to represent Christ. The white witch was meant to represent Satan. And the storyline as a whole is meant to represent the Christian gospel. Tolkien did not like The Chronicles of Narnia. And he often told C.S. Lewis that he did not like The Chronicles of Narnia as Lewis was writing it. He thought it was really hastily written. He thought the allegory was way too obvious, in your face. Both of them were strong believers, though. They were both very, very devout Christians. It was a big part of who they were. But in spite of their shared religious belief, Tolkien still did not like Lewis's blatant allegory. He has been on record saying that his own fantasy work, Lord of the Rings, is not an allegory. This is interesting, however, in that... Within the Lord of the Rings, there are abundant aspects of certain characters and plot points that seem to represent Christianity. Here's a guy saying not to read his work as an allegory, how much he hates allegory, but as you read it, you can't help but notice how some of the things are screaming Christianity. And I think 
the answer to this uh, paradox is that Tolkien didn't need to try and write a, a work that expressed his Christian ideas and values. He was simply so thoroughly Christian in his worldview and his experiences that it, that it bled through into his writing. Unlike Lewis, he did not try to write a work of Christianity, but being a Christian himself was enough to make his writing reflect that. In the very same way, we shouldn't have to try very hard to live out the gospel in our daily lives. As long as we genuinely seek the Spirit of God, we will be transformed into people who naturally shine the gospel wherever we go. When we spend time with God, we will become more like him, caring about the things he cares about, seeing the world in the way that he sees the world. Galatians tells us the desires of the flesh are opposed to the desires of the Spirit. Thus, if we fill ourselves with the Holy Spirit of God, there will literally be no more room left for sin. The the Bible does provide many specific codes of ethics, many things that you should and shouldn't do for the Christian believer. And these can be used to the benefit of our understanding the character of God. But if this is the basis upon how we're going to live our lives, then it's not enough. After all, how did any of the biblical authors know what to write when they wrote it if they didn't have the Bible to read when they wrote it? How did they know? Because they were filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And that same Spirit of God lives inside each and every person who places their faith in Christ. Thus the Spirit alone is enough for us to live in a way that glorifies Him. So as we draw to a close, I'm going to answer the question— How do we do that? How do you fill yourselves with the Holy Spirit? And here are the two answers that most of you are probably expecting. If you you want to know how to walk in the Spirit, a good place to start, read your Bible and pray. John John is laughing because me and, and John always laugh about how most of our sermons seem to come down to these two basic applications. But it's just so true. We know that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit himself. We know that prayer is something that we can do to connect directly to God through the Spirit of God. So if you're wanting to know where to find the Spirit, go to the Spirit. Go where you know the Spirit has been. Pray through the Spirit of God. You can do these things and be filled with that Spirit of God because that is God's design. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Don't just do these things to write them off a checklist. Don't just read your Bible one chapter a day because that's what you're, you've been told you're supposed to do. That's the homework for the Bible study and that's like, Justin will get really mad at you if you don't actually prepare, Right? Though this will be hard for us, this process of sanctification, it is intended to be that way. It's intended to hurt because we're putting to death our own desires, and that's not an easy thing to do. To change who we are, we have to let go of a lot of pride, a lot of predispositions that make us see the world in a certain way. We have to open ourselves up to something other than us. But it's worth it. It's why we were created. C.S. Lewis on this exact topic said, We are, not metaphorically, but in very truth, a divine work of art. 
something that God is making, and therefore something with which he will not be satisfied until it has a certain character. Here again we come up against what I have called the intolerable compliment. Over a sketch made idly to amuse a child, an artist may not take too much trouble. He may be content to let it go, even though it is not exactly as he meant it to be. But over the great picture of his life, the work which he loves intensely, he will give endless trouble. And would doubtless thereby give endless trouble to the picture if it were sentient. One can imagine a sentient picture, after being rubbed and scraped and recommenced for the tenth time, wishing that it were only a thumbnail sketch whose making was over in a minute. In the same way, it is natural for us to wish that God had designed us for a less glorious and less arduous destiny. But then we are wishing not for more love, but for less. God molds us, even though it hurts, because he loves us. The Father above us, Christ beside us, the Spirit within us. This is how we live out the gospel in our daily lives. This is what we receive when we place our faith in the holy and almighty God. Let's pray together. Father, I hope that understanding of your design has been made clear. I hope that your Holy Spirit has had room to work this morning. I pray for each of the people in this building that they would open themselves up to your plan. Open themselves up to your work in their lives. Open themselves up to the incredibly heavy responsibility, but incredible, incredible privilege to live as your children. It may seem like you're doing this to hurt us. It may seem like we're just not good enough for you, and so you have to change us to make us likable, that we're just these hateful people but then we're focusing on all of our own sin and not on your holiness. And when we focus on your holiness, we see that that is what life is about, not us. Father, change us, mold us, use us. Help us to become like Christ through the power of your Spirit so that we can enjoy a relationship with you, the Father. God, we are your people, and we know that this is what you have designed for us. We love you, and it is in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.